So here's the question. How can e-commerce leaders make sure that they are producing a great product, providing a world-class customer experience, responsibly managing their finances, and still reserve time, energy, and resources for marketing their products? My name is James Sowers, and you're listening to the E-Commerce Insights Show, the podcast that gives you specific, actionable advice for growing your e-commerce business. Every Monday, you'll get a conversion rate optimization tactic that you can implement quickly to make your business 1% better every single week. Every Thursday, we sit down with industry experts to go deep on a specific aspect of running a successful e-commerce business. It's the perfect blend of learning and application, which means that you maximize the value of every single minute you spend with us. We're just as committed to growing your business as you are. So if you're looking for a partner to help you crush your revenue goals, you've come to the right place. Roll up your sleeves and grab a notepad because it's time to get to work. All right, Kurt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us. And I'm really excited to dig into everything you guys have going on at EtherCycle and talk about some big picture trends and interesting stuff that you see in e-commerce in general. If we skip past the life story and just start with where you're at today and what you're doing with EtherCycle, can you give the folks two or three sentences about what you're working on right now? I am in year 11 of running a Shopify partner e-commerce agency. Day-to-day, I do biz dev, which includes both selling projects, but realistically, producing a ton of free content is really what I describe as business development and doing strategic consulting. So our core competency really is front-end development, theme development, and putting stores in the best possible position to sell more stuff more often. Our notable clients, Jay Leno's Garage, Asutra, which is a Venus Williams-backed brand, largely known for automotive stuff. Hoonigan, Ken Block's Hoonigan Racing site, we did that as well. So a lot of fun stuff. So if I were to ask you, like, what is one maybe client project, one campaign, want something for the agency? Like, what is one thing you're working on right now that has you really excited that maybe hasn't been introduced to the world quite yet? Well, are you familiar with overlanding? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So for people who don't know, overlanding is the combination of off-roading and camping. It's essentially rich people's camping is really what's going on here. Or like people who are very dedicated to the outdoors. You're like an outdoors extremist. Anyway, I'm a car guy. I love it. And I love gear and gadgets. And so I'm very excited to be working with the team at, and this may be the scoop. I don't know that I've told anyone this, the team at Auto Anything and X Overland to build a website dedicated to overlanding accessory and gear and reviews. And I think it's going to be really cool. And so that's exciting to you, not just because it's a new client project, but because it's kind of an area that you're passionate about personally on the personal front, right? Because I understand overlanding is like, it's basically a Land Rover with something on top that pops up into a, a tent or some kind of hard top, like sleeping. The, yeah, that's like the quintessential setup. Right. Or it's coming out of the back. You put the hatch up and then you add a tent to the back and you park it on the beach or whatever. And you're just kind of camping on the beach with a fire and your dog. And you've got these little like Moscow mules in your copper cups. And that's that's how I picture overlanding. But that's probably not anything close to reality. <laughs> No, actually, that's pretty close. It's like, (laughs) yeah, it's really like the Instagram version of off-roading and camping. But it really like that the depiction is what it's really like, ignoring like all the times that you break stuff. Yeah. But yeah, no, you'd get yourself an expensive off-road vehicle, like an F-150 Raptor would be my choice. I love those. Or a Land Rover. And then get yourself like a pop-up tent that goes on the back or the roof. And certainly roof racks, lifted suspensions, and unreasonably large tires should be involved. Right. You never know what kind of surface you're going to be trying to maneuver up or down. So you need the tires to accommodate anything. I imagine that's probably an area that's like gaining a lot of steam right now. With everybody stuck at home, they want to get outside of their four walls and they can't necessarily go to the restaurants and stuff that they're used to. So it's like, hey, honey, grab the kids, grab the dog. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Camping. RVs 
and off-roading and overlanding, all of those categories just exploding right now. So I like that overlanding is a combination of several of these wonderful activities that are also enjoying quite a resurgence at the moment. That's awesome. That's super interesting. And I know besides the client work and some of the products that you're putting out, you guys also have some Shopify apps. There's like an apps aspect to the business too. So I'd like to explore that for just a few minutes. I think you have three or four right now, and I'm guessing those come from client pain points, but I'd love to hear your story or at least your description of how you come up with those ideas, how you find problems worth solving, and then how you go about getting those apps built and added into your portfolio and how you think about them integrating with the agency work that you're doing. So pretty clever. You're right. All of them did start as a feature we built into a theme for a client. And it's something where we went, wow, we're re- I'm proud of this. Can we build a backend admin for this where it installs itself into a theme, it makes it relatively universal, and it has settings and controls? And then if we could package that up, well, that's an app. And an app really represents somewhat passive monthly recurring revenue. And so that's a great, especially as an agency, at all levels of agency, you run into the feast famine cycle. And so having predictable recurring revenue in any business, I mean, that's why merchants love subscriptions, is quite the boon. So that's how I saw and came to find like, oh, we can and should sell apps in the Shopify app store. And we have four, three are forgettable. And one is Crowdfunder, which is a tool we built. I believe it was Luminade, who they give a lot of money to charity. They're selling, I think, LED lanterns. And they said, we essentially want a Kickstarter experience, but we want it on our website. We want to own it. We want to control it. Can this be done? And can you do it without an app? It had to be built into a theme because we had time. Like we were really constrained on time. I think we had like a week to do this. And so we did it. We built the proof of concept in which like we tracked inventory on products with variants. And it was like, here's how many people have backed it. And really it was looking at the inventory level. Here's how much money was raised. And then here's like percentage goal and a countdown timer. The whole thing worked. I said, man, if we could build a back end for this, that's a really cool app. I think a lot of people could benefit from this thing. And sure enough, we were able to do it. That app by itself has generated $120,000 for us. Wow. There's really very little work involved in that. My wife does most of the support part-time. Like most of it's just the same questions that are in the FAQ, but no one read it. So you just kind of copy and paste the answers. Yeah. And then the other support requests are like, no, I can't add that feature. That's too crazy. Or (laughs) our auto installer failed. That happens. I'll do it for you. So is it fairly limited in scope? Is it basically like a way to pre-sell a product or does it also support the traditional Kickstarter model where it's like, if you back us at this amount, you get an additional incentive. If you do a higher amount, you get even more, you know, can you do that that kind of tiered incentivizing or is it really pre-sale? It's funny to hear you make that mistake and everyone does this. So what you're describing is just variants. Make a, a variant option called backer level and then in it, your backer levels are like, you know, gold, silver, bronze. Right. And then say, all right, they're 150, 150 bucks. And then just describe in the damn product description what they get. Right. You don't need any app for this. That's true. At all. Yeah. And so you just do that and then pair. But the missing piece is, all right, we need the social proof Mm -hmm. and we need the urgency. And that's what our app is adding back in. That critical element that you're missing. And it's doing it in a really simple, sane way where it's not going to chew through It's not going to mess up your load time. And any developer could easily modify this thing if they wanted to. And at this point, the app's been around a few years. People do some really creative stuff with it. And what's interesting is those are the people I never hear from because they're confident in working with a theme and theme code. And so they go easily find the app, figure out how it works, and then mess with it. I love it. Right. 
the support is the people who are like brand new and are like, how do I get this to work? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, okay, you're like, you're early. Let me help you out here. The hardest part is doing the support, but it, within the support, empathizing in a way where like you don't want to talk over someone's head, but you also don't want to condescend to them. So trying to figure out like where they are in their experience level or merchant journey and then responding accordingly. That is like the weird nuanced support skill I did not expect to have to develop. Yeah, I think empathy is one of those core skills that applies to all areas of your business ideally, right? Like, and customer support is the most intuitive one, but even in marketing and stuff, the more you can put yourself in the shoes of the person you're talking to and try to communicate with them using their perspective to inform like the recommendations you make or whatever, the better off you're gonna be. It's interesting for me. I didn't learn empathy until probably about five years ago. Oh, wow. It, for me, empathy was a learned skill. I didn't have it. Interesting. I went to therapy and had to figure it out. I'm an only child. I'm a third generation of only children. And I was many years ago disowned by my parents, making me effectively an orphan. And my mother was very likely a little strange. And so I literally had to learn empathy and I did it through therapy. So for me, it's like empathy literally is a learned skill. It's something I practice. And in many ways, I think that my relationship with it is a little different. It's more active, but then at the same time, occasionally I just make like really obvious mistakes that other people wouldn't. Wow, that's super interesting. And it, I guess as somebody who is a self-proclaimed like extrovert, you know, I'm a marketing guy, like that comes naturally to me. It never crossed my mind that that would have to be, I know some people don't always take time to empathize with the other person when they're interacting with them, right? Like we're so wrapped up in our own day-to-day -day experience that we forget to pause and think about what might be going on in the other person's life. But as far as like it not being a native skill at all and something that you effectively have to get taught to you, like riding a bike or something like that, that never crossed my mind. So, I mean, I'm sorry to hear about your experience. I know that adversity oftentimes makes us stronger. It makes us better off in the long run. And I'm sure that's the case with you. But yeah, that, that's so interesting. No, to be clear, like, I don't regret any of it. Now I'm in a tremendously fortunate position that I'm very grateful for. The events that made me, I can't look at them and go like, I wish none of that happened because then I'd be trading places with someone else. Like I would no longer be me. Right. And I'm extremely happy with where I am right now. Let's talk about that a little bit because like where you're at right now is, you know, I saw your face for the longest time on the Shopify partners marketing site, right? Like you were in the hero section, big and bold, sitting right there in the Game hero. changer. Right. And so I'm sure that that's been a great source of new business for you. But what I want to talk about, I guess, is I bet that and the podcast that you're doing and all these other info products that you're putting out and stuff like that, that puts you in close and frequent interaction with early stage e-commerce entrepreneurs, I would think, right? So like some of those nascent brands just kind of getting off the ground, trying to get to their first million. And I'm curious, like, assuming that's correct and assuming you do interact with these folks and not just the Jay Leno's of the world, what is some advice that you find yourself repeating over and over again to those folks who are just getting started out and trying to like climb the hill to get to a point where their business is stable and self-sustaining and stuff like that? Those early stages can be the hardest sometimes. And I'm curious what advice you repeat over and over to those folks. The biggest mistake I see early merchants making, everyone makes this mistake. I made this mistake 10 years ago is no one starts with the audience. They always start with the product, the offer. You need to start with, I'm going to build the audience. I'm going to figure out the pain or problem. Then I'm going to solve that. The audience is the value. Recently, Shopify had a data leak where this is all public. They released a statement about it. As soon as they identified it, they got the FBI involved. Shopify support people, and I don't know if they were employees or contractors, exported the customer data from some of the largest stores. 
Why would they do that? Why would they risk their jobs, risk their freedom to get the customer data? Because the list, the customer is the value. It is the business. In an online business, that is your core asset. That is the thing. That's what costs you the most time, money, and resources to get. Not the product development, not the marketing that went into launching a product, getting the audience, right? That's the real value. And if you underestimate that at all, you're just slowing down how long it's going to take you. As soon as you figure it out and accept it, life becomes much easier. Yeah, I love that advice because I do think it is such a common misconception. Like folks, I mean, the product's super important. That is like the foundation of the business. Yeah, if you build it, they will come. Right. That's just straight up a lie. It flatly is not true. Well, and I think a lot of people think they can skip ahead by buying an audience through Facebook ads, right? Like that's the playbook. Oh, go to the traffic store? Yeah, go to the traffic store and yeah, see what the price is today. It's like gas, it goes up and down, it fluctuates and you hope that you catch it at a low point Correct. or you have a, an audience that has low competition and you just get involved there. But I think maybe a better example would be like Pat Flynn who started with an audience through Smart Passive Income, saw an opportunity in the market, created a product called SwitchPod, which is like this little tripod that you can put your camera on and it folds up and becomes like a vlogging handle, basically like a selfie stick. And he had the audience launch the product. And I have no reason to believe it's not doing fabulously well. And so maybe that would be a good example of what you're recommending, which is like, start with the blog, start with the podcast, build your audience, find the problem that the audience has, and then build a product to solve that and sell that. Ideally, yeah. And like, you want the overlap of this is a thing I'm passionate about. I have a core interest. And this is what I can write about or like what I think there's an audience for. Or I have an, some unfair advantage where I'm like, I already start to have access to maybe an existing audience. Like, that's what you want because that innate love and enthusiasm for whatever your niche is, is what's going to drive you. So for me, I have been interested and enamored by entrepreneurship since I was a teenager. And so our, our show is really, my content and my podcast is about celebrating entrepreneurs and enabling entrepreneurs. And I also have been doing, I love eBay. I have a 1400 rating on eBay. I started on eBay 20 years ago. So the way I see it, I have been working in e-commerce for nearly all of my adult life. Where I am now is just because I leaned into that. I knew like I love entrepreneurship. I've got an unfair advantage and I have this long-term experience in e-commerce. So that overlap, okay, I could create content around that. And then I figured out, ah, I could do extemporaneous speaking. And so I, I was guesting on podcasts, just talking about you know what it's like to try and grow an agency. And several people said, oh, you should start your own podcast. And so it turns out like that was an unfair advantage I had. I had a natural skill. I could do a podcast. It's harder than you'd think. Right. And certainly like, I mean, I'm in year five of doing a podcast. When I listen to year one, I'm like, Jesus, I should delete this. It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a skill you develop over time. You just look for those things, that overlap of like interests and enthusiasm and unfair advantages and innate skills. And wherever in the Venn diagram in the middle is like, oh, e-commerce entrepreneurship, like cool, doing e-commerce for direct-to-consumer automotive websites. Ah, all right, there's the overlap. Right. When you can find that, that's when it just becomes about stacking the bricks where it's like, all right, I'm going to release one podcast, 50 downloads, two podcasts, 150 downloads, right? And pretty soon after five years, you turn around and go, oh, I have a podcast with 1.3 million people. At least 30,000 people know who I am. Right. But I only need eight clients, realistically. If I had 12 clients, I'd be tearing my hair out. 30,000 people know who I am and I need eight clients at a time. Well, of course, I'm going to be able to cherry pick the fun ones, the easy ones, the good ones. 
because all I do is go about and talk about what I love. Mm -hmm. And I have no reason to believe that literally anyone can't do that at some level. It's simply a matter of doing it long enough. And that's where they get tripped up because I think you probably be doing it for at least two years before you really make that impact and start to get that traction. I've been doing this 11 years. It took me six years to figure it out and then five years to get to an audience of 10,000, 30,000 people. It's tough. Right. It's really hard. A lot of it's just about endurance and showing up. Well, and people, a lot of people get discouraged in those early stages because they see something like 50 downloads and to them, like that's insignificant. But if you think about 50 people in a room, right? Or even like 200 people, all of a sudden you can't fit them in a room. You got to put them in an auditorium. And imagine standing on a stage talking to 200 people and how you would feel like, I know it's not a direct correlation, but like that's pretty similar to 200 downloads on a podcast list. You would ask me about YouTube videos and I was like, well, it's always disappointing when you upload the video and it gets like two, 300 views. Yeah. You're right. If I spoke to a room with 300 people in it, that's a win. I've done that. Like I can vividly picture it because I spoke at Shopify Pursuit twice. And the first time I did it, like I really gave it everything I had. And that had maybe 150 people in that room. Mm-hmm. And I still look back on that fondly. Right. But then when I see the video with 150 downloads, I was like, man, that sucked. Right. You're right. What's the difference? <laughs> right. It should be the same, but it's so hard. It's just our natural inclination to not weigh those things the same. And it's just something that you have to be mindful of and try to be intentional about overcoming. You know, when we talk about this advice for early stage e-commerce founders, if you're comfortable with it, I think it might be cool to discuss this in terms of your wife's store that you're working on, right? WWDW. WWDW. So you guys basically started this from scratch, right? Like this is a passion project, love going to the parks or whatever, saw a demand in the market, maybe had some audience. Like, tell me about the origin story, I guess is the term from, from the X-Men comics. Like, what's the origin story of WWDW? So my wife had sold an info product and been successful with that. And she ran a an accounts receivable business. It was essentially... It was a, like a SaaS, a productized version and friendlier version of debt collecting that kind of skirted, played to the law and wasn't quite debt collecting. Mm-hmm. And it was very successful, successful enough that she quit her job and she hated it, <laughs> absolutely hated it. And we went to Disney World as a family, like it was a whole huge family trip and she coordinated planning the whole thing. And when you include like all the kids and stuff, I think it was 16 people. And none of them like were particularly enthusiastic about planning for Disney World, where she loved it. So she had put together all this info on it. And I said, man, like you got to put that in an email, like try and sort it into an email. So she did that. And I said, wait, once you got that, what? like I had other people would pop up and I could see they were talking about going to Disney World. I said, man, are you going for the first time? Oh, yeah. Oh, my wife, because she planned for a year. So during this time, I'm like, well, my wife put together all this info. Can I send it to you? And I'd copy and paste it forward to them. And I was like, well, what are we doing? I said, you should turn this into an ebook. And so we went, we're at the park. And I remember we were staying at Port Orleans and we're walking over the river. And she said, I'm going to turn this into a business. But we didn't know what it would look like. Right. But she immediately, like we figured out the domain name, we put up the site. She may spent two weeks just crafting articles, just creating a ton of content to launch with. Put that up. Then like turned around, almost immediately started a podcast, started a YouTube channel, started producing videos and started a Facebook group. like just started with the audience. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, well, how do we monetize it? So she had an ebook, she had a guide that she was selling. Then we started adding t-shirts that were print on demand. And we added affiliate stuff in like to a travel agent to like a whole bunch of added so many revenue channels just to see which is the one that's going to stick. And it was all done at this, like we launched with a ton of content and a complete brand. 
And we made it very personal. Like the site loads with her face to camera talking and talking about her experience. Like I'm a mom. I wanted to get the most out of the trip. And it's all specific like niche to park planning content and adjusting it, adjusting it. Finally, it was making money this year or last year. And then into this year, by the end of this year, it was going to make real money. Mm-hmm. And then a pandemic hit <laughs> right. and travel disappeared and all the parks closed. And really like it decimated her business. And it's been extremely difficult. It's been depressing when you're so close to success and then to have it just go, you know, well, you got to put it on pause for a few months. Eh, you got to put it on pause for a year. And now it's like, well, you're probably going to put it on pause for about two years, realistically. That sucks. Well, I think it's important to tell those stories, right? Because most podcasts focus on success stories and they might talk about like <laughs> yes. a, a little adversity along the way, but to have that kind of dramatic decimation really of the business, just as it was about to get some traction is important to share because that's a fact of life, right? And the goal of our conversation today and most of the conversations we have is like, how do you either avoid that or how do you push through it and come out better on the other side? And like, what I love about the story you just told, tying back to talking about starting with the audience and not the product is like, With Walt Disney World, the audience is there. You know there is a massive population of raving fans of Disney World and all the parks and the characters and everything associated with that. And what I heard in your story is she had a product and the market was essentially pulling that from her. Like they were reaching out and grabbing for it and she just had to find the right way to package it up and present it to them. Yes. Whereas a lot of people, I think, start with the product and they try to force it upon the market thinking that everybody else's experience is just like theirs. They have the same problems as theirs. And it's like, if you don't start with the customer research or if it doesn't already exist, like it's kind of well known that it's out there, then I think you're going to stumble a little bit because you don't know for sure that there's enough demand to really build a business on top. Here's a great question I like to ask people. I go, tell me about your customer. They tell me. I say, how do you know that? They say, we just know. I say, have you ever interviewed one of your customers? No. Have you ever surveyed one of your customers? No. So that's really, what you think you know about your customers is actually a best guess, isn't it? You've really just kind of stumbled upon success unknowingly. You have no idea who's buying your product or why, do you? And then they're like, uh, <laughs> uh-oh. As the light bulb clicks. What's even worse is they go, I know because I am my customer. Like I'm scratching my own itch. And it's like, well, yeah, sure, I guess. But you're just one person. It's a decent way to start. Like the entrepreneur stars I hear are almost always, I had a pain or problem in my life. I researched the solutions. They all sucked. And then I asked myself, why not me? That's like the first critical question Mm -hmm. that gets you started as an entrepreneur. Because so much about life, especially American life, if you've gone through American public schools instead of like a Montessori school, is you're waiting for permission for everything. They beat that into you so that you'd be a good factory worker. And so you got to unlearn that shit. You ask yourself, why not me? A lot of what I do is just give people permission to go do the thing they want to do anyway. Right. So if you can gain that and then you have this pain or problem in your own life and then go, well, you know what? All the solutions suck. I could make a better one. Why not? That's where you see the successful person who's like, I was my own first customer. But there's also, you know, in that scenario, like when we're doing those interviews, it's confirmation bias. The people who tried and failed were, aren't going to be like, oh, let's do an interview about it. Right, yeah. Right? You only hear from the successful people. So you've got survivorship bias. Mm-hmm. Like, this worked for me, therefore it'll work for everybody. So take it with a grain of salt. But no risk, no reward. So maybe that's a good opportunity for a transition here because I know you appear on a lot of podcasts. You used to go do a lot of conference talks back when that was a thing. And I'm guessing most people want to talk to you about marketing or CRO because of the work that you put out there publicly. But I'm curious, is there a topic around e-commerce or running an e-commerce business that you don't get asked about a lot or you don't have the opportunity to speak about a lot that you'd like to take a few minutes here if we open the floor to um, share with the listeners? 
Well, the thing we always hear about is like success and hustle and grind and I'll sleep when I'm dead. Like just utterly absurd. Hashtag girl boss nonsense from Instagram. It's important in that it's meant to motivate people, but I think long-term it, it sends the wrong message and it presents self-care as weakness. And so like, yeah, the excitement and the enthusiasm of building the business is really the hustle. That's what lets you grind through in the early days. But eventually you need to take some time for yourself. It is not sustainable long-term. Like your brain is not a gas motor. You can't just keep dumping gas into it and hoping it keeps going. But at some point, their maintenance is required of a, a human life. So I believe in self-care strongly. And I've already admitted that until 2015, I did not have my motion chip installed. And so I think we may as well stick with some of the mental health talk here. But ultimately, I think entrepreneurs can have a tendency to be incredibly hard on themselves. One of the most powerful things my therapist ever told me was, and I'll never forget it, was, Kurt, you're too hard on yourself. I was like, what? I am. That was one of those permission moments where she had just given me permission to not be so hard on myself, where I was like always beating myself up about essentially steadily building a successful business, not fast enough. That's crazy. I got to where I wanted to go. I just was mad that I wasn't getting there fast enough. And I think a lot of people are in that position where they're getting down on themselves for no reason. And when you beat yourself up like that, you're not going to go any faster and you're not going to be any happier and you're not going to be any more fun to be around. So taking a break, appreciating the journey, appreciating where you are, engaging in self-care. And I think that looks different for everybody. For me, it was like, all right, I'm going to go to therapy and then I'm going to get a recreational medical marijuana card, that sort of thing. Like it's different for everyone. I'm going to go fly my drone, ride my bike. Like that's the stuff I like to do. But taking time out for yourself and then not beating yourself up about your successful business not being successful enough or your early stage business where like just count your wins, celebrate your wins. And I wish more people talked about and acknowledged that because on shows like mine and others, all we do is hold up these wildly successful outliers. We're not looking at just like, this is an average lifestyle business. And I very much view myself as having a lifestyle business. Many of the people I interview are way more successful than me. And I am happy and in a good place and very fortunate. Really, I, I want that for everybody. But it, it's, it's not going to happen unless you work at it flatly. For sure. It's something you have to be intentional about. You have to schedule time for. You have to find a support system for, or else it's going to kind of fizzle out and it'll never really take hold. I think there's some tie-ins between that and the survivor's bias that we talked about earlier, where it's like, hey, I was my own customer. I built something to solve my problem and it worked out. And look at me because, you know, those people are the only stories we hear on the podcast or on YouTube or wherever else we're like catching those stories. I think in the same way, this hustle and grind mentality is the people out there promoting it are the ones that haven't broken yet, right? Or at least they're willing to pretend that they haven't broken yet. And it's like, yeah, that might be working for you now, but does that mean that you're going to have this catastrophic crash further down the road versus just like these mini periods of burnout that people experience in their normal day-to-day -day life? And I think the point maybe is like, even if you see examples of this supposedly, quote unquote, working for some of the people that you trust or that you think are experts, like that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be your experience. And it might just mean that they're setting themselves up for a bigger fall. Whereas if you take the time to maintain your mental health now, you don't have to put yourself at risk for anything like that. Yeah, I think the thing that we're not seeing, like Instagram, social media, everyone's content marketing is everybody's highlight reel. No one's posting about the time like, they had a cash flow problem or, oh, we screwed up our taxes and got a giant tax bill. Both things that have happened to me. It happens. Mm -hmm. And certainly I didn't post about it on social media. Like, yeah, you pat myself on the back like every all these other entrepreneurs on Instagram. So yesterday I talked to a huge 
person in the e-commerce space. Like just a someone with a big audience that everybody looks up to who has an eight-figure business, really quite tremendous. And he's like talking about how how tired he was and how burned out he was because it happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. They just don't talk about it online. Everyone at all levels and all stages of business at some point will just run themselves too hard and they need to take a break. And that's totally normal. Like that is a skill you learn as an entrepreneur. Like I can recognize it. And when it happens, I know I just, I take a break for a few days. That's all it takes. And then I'm back at it. Because when you're able to recognize it early and you know what to do about it, ah, it's much easier to get past it. Yeah. And it can be hard because presumably you've built up some momentum. Business is going pretty well because you're working so hard on it. And you're like, if I take time off now, I'm going to lose all of that. And 99% of the time, that's not true. Like you could take a week off, you could take a month off and your business is probably going to be okay. I mean, you can't foresee something like a global pandemic or anything like that. But (laughs) in the absence of that, like if you're fairly far along in the process and you've been working hard, you've probably laid the groundwork for everything to be okay until you take the time you need to get back to 100% and then get back at it, right? And I think over time, you get better at seeing this before it happens and you see the warning signs and you know that you need to take time off before you already experience some of those burnout symptoms and just completely crash to the ground. So I'm curious, now that we've talked about finding ways to not pull your hair out, I want to ask you a question that's going to make you want to pull your hair out. So let's just say I have a store and I've got this fancy new tool that Shopify may or may not have put out that tells me my page speed and my load time. And it's telling me that I'm scoring something like uh, 24 out of 100. Can you help me fix that? <laughs> Ew. (laughs) No, I can't. It's just not realistic or possible or a worthwhile use of your time. Here is my issue. I think websites should be fast. I think a fast website doesn't hurt and a slow website doesn't help. Google PageSpeed is a utterly garbage tool for measuring site load time. And my reason for that is it's assigning a largely arbitrary letter score to a website. And it's doing it across all sites and treating them all the same. That just is not practical or reasonable. And I found it baffling that Shopify, when they said, hey, we're building our own performance tool, I was thrilled. I said, great, performance is important and Google PageSpeed is a lousy measure. So please give me a sane metric. Give me a sane tool for this. And instead, it's just Google PageSpeed inside the Shopify admin. I truly was disappointed by that, but it's not like it's set in stone. Certainly they could change it in the future I hope they do. But like, what's so silly about it is if I want to know the performance of a website in any web browser or with any number of tools, I can determine what is the size of the page and how long did it take to load and render? I had sane metrics for this. If you said, Kurt, how fast is your car? I would say, well, it does zero to 60 in 3.9 seconds. I wouldn't be like, oh, well, on the motor trend, quickness performance report, it scores a 66 out of 100 on highways and a 34 out of 100 on Overland streets. Like, what in the hell did you just say to me? <laughs> right. But that's what Google PageSpeed is. We reinvented a metric for a thing that we had a perfectly sane and legitimate and reasonable metric, right? And so when you attach a letter score to it, Merchants just see that and go, oh my God, I'm getting a D minus. And they freak Mm -hmm. and I don't blame them. And so they tear their hair out and it gives them anxiety. And like, it's quite disturbing. Then you hear these stories, oh, they're going to make that a ranking factor. You're going to lose all your organic traffic. No, they're really not. All right. And some neckbeard told you that, but it's not true. And somebody who just wanted to drive clicks to a blog for their own stupid business told you that. And it just isn't true. The reality is every query on Google is a question. 
you're asking a question. And every search result on Google is an answer. And Google just wants to give you the right answer for the question. And what they're going to do is they're going to use page speed as a way to decide if two things were going to take the same spot, the one that has the faster result is going to go in slot one, and then the other one will go in slot two. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That is not the end of the world. It really isn't. And a lot of the recommendations that Google PageSpeed make are maddening and just make for websites and Shopify stores that are incredibly difficult to maintain and prone to breaking. So it sounds like a case of the intent was right, the execution was poor, Yes. right? But the fact of the matter is your site could be loading slow, but we shouldn't rely on that score in isolation as an indication of how well your site is performing. What would you recommend instead? I mean, you can load it on your own phone or computer. Like, were you able to do it? Was it slow? Are you still getting orders? Well, gee, you're getting a 12 out of 100 on page speed. I have clients who are getting 12 out of 100 on page speed and are doing a million dollars a month. Oh, what? How's that possible? They're getting an F minus <laughs> minus on page speed in their million dollar a month business. Stupid. And I think I saw somebody with like a sterile template right out of the gate, like a basic template that got less than 50, you know, like 35 yes. out of 100. And it's like, well, it has no plugins. It has no extensions. Yeah, 35 out of 100 is about as yeah. good as it gets on Shopify. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> Aside from loading it on their phone, like would somebody throw something into like a GT metrics and use that as a more reliable indicator and then try to figure out the problems from that? Or like, what do you recommend? Honestly, you could just use the web browser. Mm -hmm. I just use the network tools in any web browser will tell you here's the page size and the load time. If I'm not using that or I want like a third party independent metric where I could keep retesting, like I have gigabit internet at home and all our phones are LTE. Right. Like everything is going to load super fast unless I'm in a rural area or I'm stuck in an elevator shaft, which is actually one of the ways I test for performance issues on sites that are too huge. I'm like, what if it's JavaScript's loading in incorrect order? I will go stand near our elevators in our office building. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> I get poor signal. That's quite a trick. No, rule of thumb, the site is five megs or less. It's fine. If you can get it to two and a half megs or less, it's fast. Yeah. If it's over five, you did something dumb. Like you're, you put up images that are too big. There's a bunch of apps you uninstalled that are still loading. Like, honestly, that's the rule of thumb. It's totally fine. On the time, if you, it loads in like less than three seconds, that's awesome. No one's going to think twice about it. Yeah, it's like imperceivable, right? To the human eye or whatever. Like it's not slow enough for anybody to notice. And I think like 90% of the time, this isn't my area of expertise, but 90% of the time when I see people talking about page speed, the consultant or the agency that fixed it for them, they said, I compressed images and I removed like latent code from apps that were uninstalled that was still running in the background or something like that. If your site's slow, do those yeah. two things. Yeah. <laughs> those are the two culprits. So there you go. And go ahead. If you want to take that as a consultant and charge 10 grand for it, go ahead. Because people will probably pay it because they're freaking out about their scores. Okay, cool. So I want to switch gears yet again and have a fun question for you. So we're all locked up inside, but I know you've made a couple of impulse buys. Like you're, you're a little click happy <laughs> over there shopping around. And so I want to know two things. One, what is the coolest or most fun product that you bought while in quarantine or whatever you want to call this like intermediate phase that we're in right now? Secondarily, maybe they're the same thing. What is the purchasing experience that was the most enjoyable? So if we were going to nerd out on user experience or like something that you do professionally, what was the best purchase from that perspective? Okay, number one, I think the coolest or the most fun, I'm going to go with the arcade cabinet. Ooh. I have wanted an arcade cabinet in my house since I was a teenager. I'm 37 now. I've always wanted one. And I've been looking for a used one for several years at this point. Couldn't find one. I'm not going on vacation. I'm not spending money on gas. Like there's just, there's extra income. And so I didn't feel guilty about buying, it's called a, a MAME multi-arcade machine emulator. And so I've got this arcade cabinet that runs thousands of games. It's so fun. It's so cool. It was 850 bucks on Etsy. 
And they had a Shopify store and an Etsy store. And their Shopify store scared the hell out of me. It did not look <laughs> trustworthy. And I know it's just because they didn't put in the effort to finish it or set it up. But even of me, an e-commerce consultant, I'm like, eh, I wanted the third-party protection of a marketplace like Etsy. <laughs> so I bought it from them on Etsy and it was a good experience. It showed up. I love the machine. It's a ton of fun. And my kids, oh, my kids love video games. So it was cool to see our kids be able to play all these old games and get really like a very balanced uh, the history of video games experience. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it was cool. It's fun. But I posed this question to my wife and she goes, 100%, were there not a pandemic where we were saving a bunch of extra money and we didn't need three cars anymore? So 100%, our pandemic purchase was her Tesla Model S 100D. Mm-hmm. So we bought her a Tesla. And it's our first electric car. I love it. And then on top of it, I went nuts and I got it vinyl wrapped. Ooh. So if you're not familiar, instead of repainting cars, you can actually just put what's essentially contact paper on them. It's totally cool. It works. It lasts uh, many years. And so she has like a bright satin, yellow, gold, kind of color shifty, just gorgeous car. And that's pretty insane. But the Tesla purchasing experience is bizarre and wonderful. <laughs> that's an interesting description. It's an online purchase. When you buy from them, you just go like, here's their used inventory. They've got filters. You filter down to what you... I bought a used one. I'm not crazy. Yeah. And before everyone was like, this dude's a baller. I bought a three-year-old <laughs> Tesla off lease. And so you filter it, but to get exactly what you want, and they're like, here it is, here's the price. And then you just click buy, pay a deposit right there. And then later they're like, okay, the car's moving. You're going to be able to pick it up in a couple of days. ACH us the down payment or ACH the whole payment and then finance. Like you literally do the entire thing through a website. Right. And then they just, they text you. They don't even call you. They text, it's like the entire thing was built for introverted millennial weirdos like myself. Then they text you, just go to, either they deliver it to your house or either go to a local dealership. And then when you show up, a guy wearing a mask says, hey, the paper's in the car with a pen, go sign it and bring it back to me. And then that's it. You just leave. Wow. Like if anybody can buy a vehicle online through e-commerce, then- And it was easy. Yeah, whatever anybody else is working on, like you can make it happen, right? <laughs> like how hard can it be? Truly. Maybe the only caveat to that is like drugs and alcohol. You don't want to sell those online. But yeah, that's an interesting experience. So the Tesla thing and then the arcade I love because like I was fortunate enough to have a single video poker machine when I was growing up. Oh. And I thought that was the greatest. You know, I'm standing there on my stool because I'm not tall enough to actually reach it. Yeah, we have the stools. Yeah, and then I had to hit the button to like bet and everything. Like my dad taught me the whole concept of <laughs> like Texas Hold'em. And so, and because it was all just fake money, like he would open right. the door and there was a little switch you could hit to add more credits. And so it was like, it was all fake money or whatever. And uh, yeah, I just remember playing that all the time, especially on Christmas when the family was over and it was like so boring. Like I just wanted to check out and I'd go over there and just play video poker all night. And so fond memories about that. But I can't imagine having thousands of games in a single unit available to you at any time. Like, how do you get any work done? Listen, before I let you go, I got one more fun question for you and I'll put some limitations on it. So if you could do anything professionally that is not related to e-commerce and let's just say like marketing in general, right? Like you can't use CRO or anything like that that you might be advising clients on. Like, what would you see in another life like Kurt Elster doing for a living? If I had a different upbringing and it was a different life, there's a parallel universe. I believe wholeheartedly there's a parallel universe in which I'm a successful, but probably kind of douchey plastic surgeon. <laughs> that would be the bizarro version of me. And I'm pretty squeamish. So I don't know how that would work out. Like this bizarro universe, I'm like cool with surgery. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, cosmetic surgery, of which I've had none, I find it fascinating and interesting. And I'd want to think that I could, 
be successful as a plastic surgeon. Because it's also like business and marketing yeah. combined with elective surgery. I think the whole thing's fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. So you should get the white coat and you should make that like a, a marketing campaign. Like we're going to come in and we're going to no. dress up your website, right? We're going to revamp <laughs> your website. That's what we're going to do. So yeah, I could see it. I could see it in another life. That's an interesting answer to the question. Cool. Well, maybe we'll wrap it up there. That was fun. A little bit of fun to cap things off. And uh, before I let you go, this is your opportunity to let folks know where they can learn more about Kurt Elster and everything at EtherCycle and anything else you want to plug here. Absolutely. You should Google me. Google Kurt Elster. Head to KurtElster.com. You can find my resources there. But number one, sign up for my newsletter. It comes from my actual email address. I went through so much effort to make it so hard to get to just email me. And the people who desperately want to email me never figure out that my <laughs> newsletter is my actual email address. So I just reply to any of those emails. You send me a thoughtful question, an interesting anecdote. I will absolutely send you something back. You took one of my best hacks because I subscribe to so many newsletters and I filter them into folders where people are like, how do you filter through all that noise? I'm like, you don't understand. I do it just so that when I need to talk to that person, I hit reply and I either get them or their assistant. And if I have a decent enough cold outreach email, it gets forwarded on and I get to talk to that person. That's always been one of my that's life hacks. Good. If anybody asks is like, that's how I get in touch with people who are above my station for lack of a better term. And it's because they care about what their newsletter subscribers are thinking and saying, and they want to form relationships there. Yes. And if I'm naturally one of them and I reach out and I just happen to present them with an opportunity to come on the show or something like that, I've gotten a really good response rate from that. So yeah, that's a great life hack. Yeah, I'm open. Like, that's the way I want it to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the people figured out like, okay, they get free advice from me. Just use it responsibly, folks. Don't abuse it. No, just All right, Kurt. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Had a lot of fun hearing your life story. And we went on a bunch of tangents, but I think there's a common thread in there and some folks got some really good advice. If nothing else, you know, they know that page speed is just a manufactured illusion and we don't need to pay any attention Ew. to it unless it comes from a reputable source. All right. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my honor and pleasure. I got a, a hard stop two minutes ago, so I got to get out of here. Hey everybody, this is James again. And before you go, I just wanted to invite you to join one of the coolest things I get to work on as Director of Marketing here at The Good. It's called the E-Commerce Insiders List, and it's a private version of this podcast feed that gets you access to tons of additional bonus content like extra interviews, Q&A sessions, website teardowns, and anything else we can dream up. It doesn't cost you anything but your email address, and we promise to always respect your inbox. This is just our way of forming stronger relationships with our listeners and making sure that we produce content that is actually valuable to you and to your business. If you're interested, you can join the rest of the e-commerce insiders by going to thegood.com slash podcast and dropping your email into the form at the top of the page. We'll follow up with directions for how to access the private feed and you'll be off and running. Like I said, this is one of my favorite things that I get the opportunity to work on because it lets me interact directly with e-commerce founders and leaders just like you. If you're interested, I'd love to see your name pop up in my notifications. Until then, keep an eye out for the next episode of the e-commerce insight show and we'll talk to you soon.